turning God's word to the book of Galatians, to Galatians 2. As you do that, I'll mention two things. One, this evening we're going to be continuing in a series through a book of the Bible, through 2 Samuel. And as we've been doing that, we've been seeing that there are so many lessons, more than we can ever touch on, lessons both spiritual and moral to be gleaned from the life of David. God, by the Holy Spirit, orchestrated all of those events throughout his life for our blessing. So Lord willing, we can gather for that this evening. Also, do take note, if you have kids of the appropriate age, this evening following the service, there's going to be youth group tonight. So bear that in mind for high school age children. Now this morning, maybe you have been away for a while, you don't know where we're at, maybe you're a visitor, we are working through key questions of the Christian faith. And those key questions aren't just what I thought were great questions. Pastors have their opinions, but one of the things we use to help us hone in on what are the biggest questions according to the Bible is to use what's called a catechism, a series of questions and answers that is agreed upon by a great many pastors and elders. And we happen to be using one that is more than 500 years old, the Heidelberg Catechism, It's divided into 52 sections, one for each week of the year. We don't usually go through all of it in one year. But we come this morning to Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 24 deals with the doctrine of good works. And it deals with it at this point mainly negatively. That is to say, what good works are not good for. When we get to Lord's Day 32, it'll deal with it positively that good works are worthwhile. But this morning, the focus is on what they are not good for. And our primary text, the text that we're going to start with, is in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. The passage deals with this, but really the entire epistle of Galatians is about this main subject, not placing the wrong value, the wrong worth, upon our good works. Now, oftentimes, especially if we're in a narrative like this evening will be, we focus on one text almost the entirety of the sermon. This morning, given the nature of the doctrine, we're going to be in quite a few places in the Bible. So you'll want to have your Bible handy or just have a ready ear because we're not just going to be in Galatians. But we start here at verse 15. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. Galatians 2.15, the Apostle Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. By works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's ask the Lord to bless our meditation on his word. Heavenly Father, you call us before you in order that we might stand ready to receive your word. And we thank you that we do so not in our own strength, but according to the purpose and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this morning in Christ's name that you would show mercy to us by transforming us, renewing our minds, inclining our hearts to respond appropriately to what you reveal. Guard us from all error. Prepare us for all good service. Help us to know how to teach the elemental things, the basic things, to others, whether it be our children or friends or family. 
Prepare us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would imagine that most, if not all of us, are familiar with examples of people experiencing ruin or loss because they set the wrong value on things. Often we think of this in financial terms. People suffer the loss of money because they valued something that turned out not to be as valuable as they thought. I had a little taste of this when I was pretty young. In 1995, this was the last time, to my knowledge, that the Chargers went to the Super Bowl. 1995, one of my relatives saw that as an opportunity for her to make some money. She did not have a lot of money. She took what she did have, probably more than she had. I'm sure she would not mind this being shared. She laughed about it after. She took what she had, and she bought a bunch of sweaters, blank white sweaters, and a bunch of some kind of fabric paint. And she spent a lot of time, and this was a person who probably had two jobs at that time. So whatever free time she had, she was making these Chargers-themed sweaters. And her idea was she would go to the stadium when the game was over. Everybody was so happy that the Chargers totally crushed the 49ers. And they would all want to buy her sweaters because they looked so great. She had put a lot into this. And then, of course, the Chargers did not win. And she sold not a single sweater. No one bought a sweater. And her big investment was gone. Now, it was not that big of an investment, but history is full of examples of people even taking their lives because of catastrophic loss. Maybe their whole fortune was vested in some company or a bank and it folded, and now they can't imagine living with the shame and the change of life and all of that. There is a greater danger, a much bigger peril, according to the Bible, that comes from placing an overvalue upon your good works than can ever come from overvaluing things of this world, material things, financial things. There is far greater danger in overvaluing, overestimating the worth of your good works. That's not just something that unbelievers in the world, professing non-Christians, need to hear. The epistle to the Galatians was written to Galatian Christians. And they're the apostles warning them not to put their confidence in their good works to make them acceptable to God, either in whole or in part. And that's basically how it goes, that people think that when they die, if they should appear before God and have to account for their lives, for good and evil, that a portion of why God accepts them, or maybe all of why God accepts them, is the good that they did, whether their intentions or their acts of love. The book of Romans has a phrase for this. It refers to it in chapter 10, verse 3, as establishing your own righteousness according to the law. By law there, it's talking about the moral law and everything that God commands. Establishing your own righteousness according to law. Imagine that you go into a court, but you are your own defender, and you're trying to prove this one's a good one. You're defending yourself. You're saying, I am righteous. I'm acceptable. And here the warning is not to put your confidence in your good works at all. Now, I want to deal with an objection, several objections at this point. Perhaps Under this roof here, in this very room, or certainly outside of this room, there are many people who do not feel much of a need to establish their own righteousness before God. 
it comes up in different ways. You might be speaking with somebody and they say, look, I, I get that you're a Christian, but I don't believe that there is an afterlife. I don't think I'm going to give account for anything. When I'm dead, I'm just dead. Or maybe they say, well, there might be a God, and maybe they, I do believe there's God, but I can't imagine that God would actually condemn me. I, I, I'm not a terrible person. I'm not the best person, but I'm not that person or that person. And so there are these objections. Now, in the first place, that latter person has already demonstrated that they have, in their minds, established their righteousness. That's why they're not worrying about it. They think, well, if there is a standard, I'm good enough. They've already done it. How would you reason with such a person? Should you even reason with such a person? In a sense, I would say, yes, the Bible does acknowledge such reasoning. In fact, Acts 24, the same apostle who writes this book to the Galatians, it says he reasoned with Felix, who was a Roman governor. It says he reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. How is Paul able to do that? It's because, according to the Bible, you could find a whole description of this in Romans 1 and 2. According to the Bible, certain truths are knowable by the light of nature. Certain truths are knowable by the light of nature, which means that God has created the world in such a way, and he's created you in such a way, he's created people in such a way, that they don't need to be taught certain things. They know them. They can be deduced by the light of nature. Now, I cannot offer to such a person empirical evidence, you know, a chemical test. And I can't offer to them a mathematical formula. But not all truth is known in the same way. Can you imagine your spouse asking you, or maybe your child asking you for empirical and mathematical proof of your love for them? And yet we do know that some people love us. We make reasonable inferences, and much of what it means to be a human, a creature, a finite being is to submit to the limits of how we know things and to live by the reasonable inference. In this case, when Paul was reasoning with Felix about, as it says, Acts 24, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, it might have been something like this. I'm trying to be brief here. Follow with me. To lay out before somebody first, we have a recognition that there is good and evil. Somebody says, well, you do you. I don't really believe that there's one standard of right and wrong. But then you are confronted with an actual instance of such heinous wickedness that virtually everyone, except for the person that we all agree is morbidly corrupt, everyone says, no, that is evil. There are standards of good and evil that exist above human opinion. And that means that that standard of evil did not come from humanity. It didn't arise out of biology, but it exists from a moral law giver. Morals, by their very nature, are personal. The moral law giver must be personal. It's not just a force. God. There is a God who has imposed upon us a responsibility to live according to moral light, to conscience, Even people who suppress their conscience still have one, so that even if it's foggy to see what is right and wrong, they still recognize there is right or wrong, and they don't even live up to that. Even what is within their control to do, they do not do. And that's where Paul says that there is sin, righteousness, and self-control involved. Even what was in your power to do, you did not do. If there is a God who has 
a moral standard, we cannot help but notice in this world much, most of the evil goes undealt with. Horrifically evil people die fabulously wealthy and in peace. It will not satisfy the thinking person to say, well, we're all basically good. And No. There must be. And, and when you experience it, even a taste of it yourself, you find yourself longing that there would be final judgment. Now, because we have a sense of our own sin, the tendency is to try to push that down. Romans 1 says man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, but it's like a beach ball that you're pushing under the water of the pool. It wants to pop back up. But we try to push it down and not deal with that. But the work of the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, verse 8, is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And so you're trying to push down your conscience, but here comes the Holy Spirit with his hand, and he pushes it up. And where he wants to, he will hold it like a fire to your conscience that you are accountable, you have sinned against God, there is a final judgment, and that if God is to be just, everyone must give an account. It's precisely at this point that man, according to his nature, and especially in light of his fallen corruption strives to establish his righteousness on the basis of his goodness. So, well, if there is a judgment, then I'd better make sure I'm good enough. You know, if I know that I've got a final on that day, I'd better prepare well enough that I'm not going to fail, even if I'm not going to get a a perfect A. And so people start to try to do their best, or at least to pass. Here we're going to see in this passage, and in many other passages, God is calling you to do what is so contrary to the natural person's instinct. He's calling you to view your good works as worthless. Literally, no faith that your own goodness has anything at all to do with why God receives a person into glory. Isn't that so completely contrary to our expectations? And it may be totally contrary to what you've heard about Christianity. Jesus warned that there would be many, many, many false teachers. And when he gives a warning, we listen. We're not surprised. Many people in the world hold to a very different idea of Christianity, that their salvation is based in whole or in part on their moral goodness. But here, just as the Galatians needed to be warned, so do we. So do we not to put any value in our good works to establish our righteousness before God. Now, this morning as we consider this doctrine, I want to be clear about something. Most often, we look at passages of the Bible and we have two, maybe three points. This morning, we really only have this one, just to look at why good works are worthless before the Lord. We're going to only look at that, and that is because of how important this is. There are, and it should be said, varying degrees of importance to different Christian doctrines. Not every single Christian doctrine is worth churches dividing over, but some are worth dying over. This is one of those doctrines that Paul felt it necessary to write an entire epistle. Think we sometimes long to have more information in the Bible about certain things. The Holy Spirit says, no, this is what you need an entire book about. Why? Because our very souls stand in jeopardy over it. Humanly speaking, your salvation will be related to where you put your faith. 
in your faithfulness or somewhere else. So let's consider this together, starting with this. First, I want you to appreciate something. The overwhelming testimony of the Bible, the overwhelming testimony of the Bible is that good works have no place in why God accepts a person for everlasting life. That's worth saying because there are literally millions, if not hundreds of millions, of professing Christians who would say the opposite. That's not an overstatement. Not an overstatement. And there was a point in my life too, though I was from age 10 forward exceedingly religious in the Christian faith, there was a point up to when I was 21 that if you had asked me, I thought that what Jesus did when he died was kind of open a, a bigger moral umbrella. That it was very small under the old covenant long ago, you had to be super holy, but that under the new covenant he opens a bigger moral umbrella, and as long as you don't stray too far out, as long as when you die, you haven't done anything too terrible, he'll simply overlook your bad things. You're under the umbrella. That's not the gospel. That is a false gospel. The Bible is clear, though. This has nothing to do with the Bible lacking clarity. In our own passage here, start with me at Galatians 2.15. We know that a person is not justified. That is, they are not declared righteous in the court of God based on works of the law. How did Jesus summarize the law? We're not talking here simply about the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Jesus was asked to summarize the law. Do you remember what he said? Children, do you know how Jesus summarized the law? Two ways. That you shall love God and love your neighbor. We know that a person is not justified by loving God or their neighbor. But through faith in Jesus Christ... Look at verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Context here being sinners, of course. And then look over at chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law, loving God, loving their neighbor, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse that is under the sentence of God's wrath. If you turn over to the very next book, Ephesians, and look at chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, he's speaking to Christians. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you turn faith into a work, now you'd have a ground for boasting. If you treat faith as something that came from yourself or something meritorious, something that earns God's favor, the one thing you did to contribute, now you've made faith a work. No ground to boast. So if there's anything that sets you apart from others on the basis of your own willing and working, that would be a ground to boast. And he says, no, the gospel is contrary to that principle. Or if you were to go back and look at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, 
comes knowledge of sin. That's all it can do. It only reveals to you at this stage of your life as a sinner. All it does is reveal to you further and further, you are a sinner. You keep breaking the law. But it's no longer a means for justification. Verse 28 of chapter 3. A man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Not partly by works of the law, that your faith combines with your faithfulness. That's a view that in later Western Christian theology became corrupted. What we associate with Roman Catholicism now, because Western Christianity was not always what it is associated with now. It developed over literally centuries upon centuries upon centuries. But a view that Christ's merit combines with our merit, and together, if they add up to be enough, God will accept you. No, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 3 says that it was not works, but Abraham's faith, which was counted unto him for righteousness. That is, God accepted faith in the place of works. But even that faith was not meritorious. He was looking to the righteousness of God promised in Christ. Acts chapter 13, verse 39. Acts 13, 39 says, By Christ, quote, All that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. One final verse, Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why do I belabor this? To which could be added dozens, literally dozens of other passages. These are not the only instances. These are simply some of the most clear instances. You must reckon with the fact that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a person of the Bible, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear. Good works are worthless for your salvation. They're not the basis of it. Why do so many professing Christians even believe otherwise? We could insert several reasons here. One is just ignorance of the Bible. Ignorance of the Bible. And I am grateful that in the very nature of how our church has chosen to set things up. We work through this idea every so many years, inevitably, just in the nature of catechetical preaching. But this is something that should be, you would think, more often taught, right? It's one of the major themes of the Bible. The word is not preached in every church. Every church is not a true church. And so it calls us back to take heed. Also, it's because of what's said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, that is the person who has not been transformed by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, nor can he, for they are foolishness to him. It just doesn't fit what we feel by nature that, you know, by nature we feel, I do the work, I get a reward. And we don't trust God. Because of our corruption, we don't trust him that he would be so generous as to make it purely by grace. Or we do want some ground for boasting. Also, it has somewhat to do with misunderstanding the rewards that God promises in the Bible. And the Bible does promise rewards for good. But those rewards are on the basis of grace itself. Strictly speaking, God would not owe it that he rewards believers in Jesus Christ. And so we come to really the big question... Why are your works worthless to God? And there may be an objection in your heart even now. Why doesn't God accept my best efforts? 
you have to appreciate, especially believers who've been believers for a long time, and, you know, the plow has been pushed through the field of your heart for so long, it's turned up so many, you don't feel it, because that's part of the nature of the work of being humbled by the Lord, is that you don't feel like you're that sanctified. But the reality is, it has, for some of you who are more mature in the Lord, become very hard to understand why anyone would think that anything they do is acceptable to God. And you think other people think the same way. They do not. Many, many, many people do feel that what they do is and should be accepted by God. Why are even your best works worthless for salvation? This is the point at which I invite you, if you'd like to see the words for yourself, to look at the words of the Catechism. In the Thin Forms and Prayers book, this is on page 225. This is also in the hymnal. Lord's Day 24, question and answer 62 on page 225. Here, our church confesses the primary reason why your good works are not of value for establishing your righteousness. Question 62, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and are stained with sin. Our best works are stained with sin. The Bible uses different analogies for this. One of them is in Isaiah where it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There you have this stained garment. From that point forward, the color is just in it. It's stained. The nature of sin is such that even when you will to do good, it falls far short. Let me give you an example of this. Even the most godly people I have ever met, when you ask them, what's it like for you in prayer, will acknowledge that even in their prayer, they have to drag themselves very frequently to pray. The zeal that they ought to have for good falls short. So even if you desire to do good, your zeal for the good falls so far short of what God is worthy of. Not just for prayer, but for doing good in the world. We talk about, you know, having good intentions. We're good people. We're not like those people. But which one of us consistently always loves our neighbor as ourself? That's the command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor one-fifteenth like you love yourself. If I'm hungry, I put food in my stomach. If I'm cold, I put some clothes on me. If I'm emotionally weary, I want someone to comfort me. I take care of myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't say that all with preacher voice to make you feel a guilt as if I'm better than you. All of our works are worthless. All of us are in this together. This is where you have to see it. It's like, Putting up that moral umbrella where you tell yourself, I'm pretty good because I'm under the umbrella, but other people are out there. The umbrella just gets carried away in the wind. You are fully exposed if you want to wrestle with God on the basis of your unrighteousness because he's perfectly holy. He sees the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He sees it with a perfect memory. He's timeless. So he doesn't just know that you're trying better than you were yesterday. 
He sees your whole life, and so he's intimately familiar with every single instance of all depravity, all corrupt thought, as if it were now. If you are not in Jesus Christ, he is only just and righteous to look upon you in this moment, according to all of those moments. God is just. A second reason has to do with the fact that our works are simply owed to God. Hear what Jesus himself says. Luke 17, verse 9 and 10. Does a master thank the servant because he did what he was told? So you also, when you have done everything commanded of you by God, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Which one of the angels did God promise extra special blessings if they obeyed? They simply must. That's their duty. When God creates us and he gives us his image, he's free to obligate us to do righteousness. That's simply our duty. And so God doesn't owe you something just because from now on you try better. So that even if you did from this point forward live a remarkably better life than many people, yet God would not be indebted to you. That would, again, be to give yourself a ground for boasting. I want to clarify one point here. The Bible does teach that there was a time that, in a sense, there was a time when people could make a claim upon God. And children, you especially take note here. The Bible does teach that before mankind sinned, before Adam fell, God did promise him life on the basis of obedience. But even that was not strictly owed. There is a a big fancy term for this. It's called pactum merit. Merit of pact. You know it by another term. It's familiar to you just in growing up. Let's say mom or dad tells a child, go mow the lawn. Mom or dad does not have to promise any special benefit for doing so. They can just tell you, go do it. But if dad says to you, go mow the lawn and I'll give you $10, which is really good for mowing the lawn, and you go do it, and then dad says to you, well, I changed my mind. You say, no, that's not fair, because dad made a pact with you. He made a pact. He gave a promise. He would reward you. He condescended to give you something that, strictly speaking, you don't deserve. In the beginning, when God created humanity, he pacted, he covenanted that there would be blessings for obedience. And Adam could keep that because he was not yet fallen. He was like the righteous angels. But from the time he fell, that no longer works. We are sinners. Israel, under the law, experienced something kind of like this. They were not able to save themselves. And yet there was a principle in the law which offered life for obedience. As it says in Romans 10, verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Similarly, in Galatians, Paul says the law is not of faith. Not that the law could ever take away someone's sins, but part of what it offered was offered so that people would be constantly reminded, I'm not worthy. And it would drive them back to the symbol given in the sacrifices. There's the promise of life, but I break it, so I need somebody else's life. And so they look to Christ through the sacrifices. And this is what then brings us all the way back to Galatians, back where we started. The Galatian... Christians were Gentiles. They were not Jews. But people who were Jews, who had not yet come to faith in Christ, were telling these Gentile Christians 
Faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to come under the law, and your obedience to the law is what reconciles you to God. Look at our passage, Galatians 2. Paul warns in verse 21 that if you do that, if you come back under the law as your ground of acceptance, quote, you nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why did he come and live a perfect life and die for you if all the while you could have just been good enough? Galatians 3.21, look there with me. Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, as it were, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That is, the scripture, the declaration of the law, comes down like bars all around you, showing, I can't escape, I'm a sinner, so that you look to a righteousness not based on yourself. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Of course, there's the objection sometimes that if you believe that your good works have nothing to do with your salvation, that's just going to lead people to live awful lives, to justify all kinds of sin. Well, if I, my good works have nothing to do with it. And you children and young people, I speak especially, though not exclusively, to you. The good news of the gospel will never produce that outcome in a converted person. To say, well, I'll just sin because I know that God forgives me. For all kinds of reasons that we'll see when we get to Lord's Day 32, good works are still worthwhile. And they are still required of us, not as the basis for our salvation, but simply we're children of God. And it's right to do them. And they're good for our neighbors. They glorify the Lord. But at this point, this morning, our focus has simply been to look at the danger of placing the wrong worth on your good works. And so I want to exhort you, maybe you are like I was. Again, I had been very religious. I had been at every youth meeting, done all the things, shared the gospel, but the gospel I was sharing was not the gospel. It's possible that people in this very room who espouse reformed doctrine and would say my salvation is not based on my works, yet in your heart you cling to it. I exhort you, do not be bewitched. Galatians 3.1, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That is, there is an alluring, there's an intoxicating, there's a spell-like power in the thought that your works will make you acceptable. Where you don't want to rest simply in Christ, but you think, it's got to be partly me. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so then know that those 
It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I exhort you all, not only those who are not professing believers, but the whole church, just as he did to the Galatians, look entirely away. Maybe for the 5,000th time, simply be refreshed in the knowledge. It is by faith in the sufficiency of Christ alone you really are beloved of God. You really are accepted. You have everlasting life. And then out of that, may we walk. Let us go before the Lord and ask him to apply these things. (coughs) Heavenly Father, it is frightening to let go of what seems at first like a life preserver, a confidence that we've done something to make ourselves worthy. Even decades into our Christian walk, we find ourselves wanting to take hold of it again because we think that that will comfort us. We ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit and through the word that we've heard this morning, that you would shine light and reveal that that life preserver is a lead weight and it will only bring us down because nothing we do is worthy. Not up to your standard. We ask that you would help us more and more cling to Christ and out of amazed gratitude at his grace, that you would please cause us to live in a way that genuinely pleases you in the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that Christ's righteousness covers our imperfect works and that you receive them as gifts of thankfulness, but you don't demand them for our life. We ask that your church throughout the world would be more purified to cling to Christ alone, that you'd shut the mouth of the enemy who constantly tries to allure us and bewitch us with a false gospel. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.